Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This week on WealthTrack, Morningstar's 2016 Domestic Stock Fund Manager of the Year rarely appears on TV, but David Wallach of T. Rowe Price's Midcap Value Fund is joining us. Great investor David Wallach is next on Consuelo Mack WealthTrack. New York Life, along with Mainstay's family of mutual funds, offers investment and retirement solutions so you can help your clients keep good going. Additional funding provided by Thornburg Investment Management, Active Management, Flexible Perspective, Rosalind P. Walter, and the Fairholme Foundation. Hello and welcome to this edition of WealthTrack. I'm Consuelo Mack. In this age of rage for indexing, active money managers are getting short shrift, losing assets in droves as investors opt for low-cost passive index funds and ETFs, which have been outperforming the vast majority of stock mutual fund managers for 15 years or more. Over the past two years alone, investors have pulled $574 billion from actively managed U.S. funds and plowed $924 billion into passive vehicles. As Barron's recently pointed out, active U.S. managers oversee about $9.7 trillion in assets, but that haul hasn't grown much in four years and is just seven times the 1993 total. In contrast, the $5.4 trillion in passive funds has doubled since 2012 and has grown 158 times since 1993. And of note is the fact that 1993 was the year the first exchange-traded fund was launched, the S&P 500 Depository Receipt, or SPIDER for short, still one of the most actively traded ones today. There are always exceptions to every trend, and we try to find them for you on WealthTrack. This week's guest is one of them. He is David Wallach, longtime portfolio manager of the T. Rowe Price Midcap Value Fund, which he has managed since the end of 2000. Wallach was named Morningstar's 2016 Domestic Stock Fund Manager of the Year. As Morningstar put it, Wallach has successfully used a contrarian approach at this gold-rated fund for the past 16 years and noted its strong risk-adjusted performance. As of year-end 2016, the fund had beaten its category peers and Russell Midcap Value benchmark in multiple year periods, including the last three, five, and ten years. Since inception, its nearly 11% total annualized returns has also outpaced its benchmark. And contrary to many actively managed funds, the assets in T. Rowe Price's Midcap Value have remained pretty stable at more than $13 billion dollars, which means that the fund, which has been closed to new investors since 2010, is not planning to reopen anytime soon. Wallach has been described as a contrarian value investor by Morningstar. We asked him how he describes himself. I think that's a pretty apt description. Um, I 
tend to look for companies that are underperforming in the stock market. And um, they uh, may be going through a difficult period because of the business cycle or the cycle in the particular industry in which they operate, or perhaps there have been some management decisions that have not been optimal that have caused problems in the business. But um, I tend to look for uh, companies that have stood the test of time over years that are trading below what, uh, what we deem to be their underlying value, their intrinsic value. So that necessarily takes you to the new low list uh, rather than the new high list. So in that respect, I'd say, yes, this is a contrarian strategy. And do you ever invest in like truly distressed companies, um, the cigar butt approach? that <laughs> um, I, I would say companies that are in financial distress, um, I would tend not to. Okay. Uh, but if you're talking about companies that may be in decline, yes, from time to time, I'll do that. Um, uh, you know, uh, the, the fundamental principle is you always uh, want to focus on the price you pay uh, versus the value you get. So uh, it's, I'd say it's easier to invest in companies that have a stable business or a growing business, but that hasn't kept us away from things like uh, over the years, uh, tobacco companies where consumption of tobacco is in decline, but, if, but you, profitability has gone up for many of these, or from some of the department store companies, uh, some of which have managed to continue to prevail over the years. So uh, I don't invest in distressed companies per se. Um, I do invest in companies that are exiting a period of distress, for example, post-bankruptcy companies that um, have been recapitalized and written off a good deal of their debt. Um, so an example there would be uh, Arch Coal, a portfolio holding a company that was in bankruptcy right. uh, because of uh, a big downturn in coal and a leveraged balance sheet, and they wrote off $5 billion of debt. They have no net debt today. They're, so you invest in it after it's gone after through. After it's gone it's, through the ringer. Right. Yeah. I mean, are you ever tempted to go into a company that is, you know, descending through, you know, into the ringer, <laughs> you know, trying to pick a bottom, for instance, or, you know, how do you um, judge that? Well, if we put aside companies that um, have too much debt, right. which have the risk of bankruptcy, where you can lose all of your capital as an equity investor, um, you know, I do invest in companies that are where, where, you know, it's not clear where the low is in the stock, so to speak. But uh, if we're convinced that the value of the business is higher than the stock price, then we don't try to pick the bottom. It's, I've never found it um, something that you can do consistently. Mm -hmm. So we tend to be incremental buyers, if you will, over a period of days, weeks, months, sometimes years of stocks that we, that we like. Your average holding period? Is, is, is there any such thing? <laughs> well, the average holding period is about two years. but yeah, we've, Which sounds low to me. Yeah, well, we have stocks in the portfolio that we've owned for 20 years, uh -huh. uh, and um, you know, you know what happens is that you know you d you never really know when you're going to get paid. Um, sometimes you don't get paid at all, but uh, occasionally you'll invest in an undervalued stock, and lo and behold, months later, uh, it trades at your target price. And you know, the prudent thing to do is to take money off the table. And then there are examples like. Um, well, we were talking about uh, industries that might be experiencing trouble. Southwest right. Airlines would be an example. Uh, our first purchases of Southwest Airlines were in 2004, uh, and the stock was at 15. Wow. And uh, we had a view that 
um, as we do in many situations like this, there was a good business there, mm -hmm. a good share of the market, a brand that consumers recognized and were willing to pay a premium for, but um, they were not allocating their capital well. They were continuing to invest in new planes, new routes, new cities, and so forth, which was depressing the profitability. I see. Over time, the market more or less um, meted out punishment on the company, uh, and the stock underperformed. And most of the time, people, uh, managers, behave in their own self-interest. And I think uh, in this particular case, in the crash, the stock went to a price of $5. Oof. Now, I, I never intended to be looking at that kind of a price when we made our first purchases, but we continued to buy because we liked the underlying assets and we felt that they would make good business decisions, which they ultimately did. The pressures of the market caused them to do things like reduce costs, stop investing as much, um, and uh, you know, focus on maintaining that good balance sheet. And from there, it was a great stock. Right. But, this is a long way of answering your question. Um, average holding period, it, you know, there's quite, quite a wide variety of uh, you know, uh, holding periods. Some of them, as I've mentioned, it can be 20 years. Southwest we owned for close to 10 years before we really made that return. Well, one of the things that, that you told me off camera was uh, that, that you, know, you were a, a, in the fine arts business. You were not in business. Um, and that you had always been in, interested in investing because of your maternal grandfather. That's right. But there were some lessons that you learned from him as well that you've carried with you through today in running the mid-cap mm. portfolio. Well, um, my grandfather emigrated here in 1920 at the age of 17, and he started investing almost immediately. He had two brothers who had preceded him here. They were both golf pros. My grandfather became a golf pro. Um, and he invested through the 20s. Everybody made money in the 20s. Yes. It was the boom years. Um, and in 1929, um, his brother had amassed a considerable sum of money for those days. And my grandfather said, Arch, you really ought to sell some stock here. He said, no, I want to wait. I think I've got another 5% to make here. From 95000 to 100000 right? right? Yeah. Um, he didn't sell. Uh, he was wiped out by it, and my grandfather would say he was a changed man after that, as I think many people were, including my father. My father did not believe in the stock market. Mm -hmm. um, my father, so my father uh, lived 57 years, born in 1924. When he was five years old, the Dow Jones was at 400. When he died in 1982, it was at 800. Right. So look through that lens, the stock market doubled over his life. Now, I'm almost his age at that time. I'm, I'm about 57. Um, when I came into this business, uh, the Dow Jones was at 2,000, and it's at 20,000. So your choice of endpoints matters a lot. But what my grandfather, I think, what I learned from him was one should never take for granted um, prosperity in stocks and recognize that there are risks and that you can lose a lot of money. So um, that's always in the back of my mind. Right. And so, and, ha and how are you applying that? Is that why you're a value investor and you're, you're focusing on companies that are, have turnaround potential? That, that, so therefore, when I look at the FANG stocks, yeah. would you ever be in the FANG stocks? I mean, those are, well, they were mid-cap stocks once. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, um, it's funny, we were talking at lunch today about uh, Amazon, and 
There was a time when we owned Amazon in the Mid-Cap Value Fund after, after the crash, the, the tech bubble crash. Right. When you could look at it and say, they've invested all this capital to improve the business and all this research, uh, all, there's been tremendous research expenditure. Either they're going to stop and the profits are going to rise, or we're going to get something from all this spending, which in fact is what happened, the latter. Um, but today, no, I wouldn't invest in things like the FANG stocks. I, you know, my tendency is to look for companies that have been around and stood the test of time and that have been through cycles. So notwithstanding Amazon, you know, we have a lot of old companies in the right. portfolio. Uh, and one of my mentors, George Roach, who ran the New Era Fund at T. Rowe Price and later became our chief executive and chairman, he used to tell me, look at old companies because there's a DNA of success mm -hmm. And in addition, many old companies have accumulated assets that you don't really know a lot about, but which have value. So if you were to have looked at Weyerhaeuser 10 years ago, Weyerhaeuser's the biggest owner of timber in the US, but 10 years ago they had a white paper business, they had a uh, corrugated paper business, they had uh, uh, you know, a transportation business, mm -hmm. they had a minerals business, they had a home building company, and um, there was a lot of wealth hidden in the company. Why did you sell Amazon? <laughs> well, um, do you ask yourself Amazon, that every night? <laughs> um, you know, uh, Amazon reached the, my target, target price at that moment, and right. um, you know, uh, if I had to critique my myself as an investor, the the one thing I'd say is uh, that I tend to sell early. Uh, I'm not comfortable when stocks become overvalued, and there are a lot of people who are able to ride their winners yes. a long, long time. Uh, but to me, you know, when something's overvalued, uh, I start to remember my grandfather. Right. Um, and so uh, that's why I sold Amazon. You know, you remember Bernard Baruch, the great financier, was asked once, um, you know, why were you so successful? And he said, because I sold too soon. Looking at your portfolio today, what's, what's your most contrarian... Um, investment? What's the one that maybe you and your team are saying, do we really want to own this? <laughs> or <laughs> are you nuts? You know, we often, uh, we often um, ask that question. Mm -hmm. That's the right question to ask because um, if a company is out of favor, if a stock is underperformed, often there are good and legitimate reasons for that. It didn't happen by accident. Right. And, you, you know, what you really must get comfortable with is how much money you can lose. It's very difficult to recover from a loss. I mean, we all know that if you lose half your money, you have to double your money to get yes, back to, to get where back you to were. Mm -hmm. um, so well, there's a tremendous focus around what could go wrong. So yes, I'd say you know uh, we're always focused on the problems. How you know how much worse can it get? Um, I'd say one contrarian investment I, uh, uh, that we um, have purchased recently is equitable resources. Mm -hmm which is a natural gas producer in the Marcellus Basin in uh, Pennsylvania, uh, Ohio, and West Virginia. So Equitable has been around for over 100 years. It's originally a utility and pipeline company that happened to have mm. assets and a tremendous land position where you want to be today. Right. So they say better to be lucky than smart. In any event, um, um, they've managed that position very well. As a result of the fracking boom, from which they've benefited, natural mm -hmm. gas prices have stayed low 
And um, it's been a very difficult period for natural gas producers. What's happening now in the Marcellus Basin is that there's a consolidation taking place. If you go back seven years, there was a land rush, so to speak. People were coming in and acquiring acreage in the Marcellus for huge prices. Some of them were foreign companies. Um, today, those same companies are exiting because it's been so discouraging for right. them. Gas prices have stayed low, and gas prices in that particular part of the country, in that basin, lower still than average because there's been a, a uh, dearth of pipeline capacity to take the gas out of the market. Oh. So, but Equitable is well-financed. They've got an investment-grade balance sheet. They're acquiring assets cheaply. Um, you know, we're comfortable that if gas prices stay low, that they are in a position to prosper. They continue to grow their production, and they are acquiring assets cheaply now, consolidating their position and you know, building wealth that way. If gas prices go up from here, then um, I think we have a, a free option, if you will. Mm -hmm. So it's one that's, you know, even within my firm, it's a controversial stock. We don't all, all agree that this is a stock one should own. Um, but I think if you do your work, um, you know, you can come to the conclusion that, that this could be uh, quite a good performer over a period of years. Mm -hmm. I, I never know when. The, right. But I do, you know, I focus much more on the value, not the timing. Yep. And, and so you, you set a price of when you're going to exit a company. That's right. For every, every position For every that investment you own. that we have. Right. So Textron, which is a conglomerate, yeah. is, is your top holding or one of your top holdings. Mm -hmm. So explain the, the, what's the rationale in, in, owning, in sure. buying and owning Textron. Um, well, Textron, believe it or not, started as a manufacturer of synthetic yarn in uh, Providence, Rhode Island, ah. hence the name Textron in right. the 1920s. Old established. Old yep, established company um, that um, diversified quite a bit and um, over-levered itself and got into trouble in the financial crisis. Um, in this past financial crisis, yes. right? Because I seem to remember Textron from the go-go years, too. And yes, It went the through 60s. various iterations, right? It would have been one of those go-go conglomerate stocks, right, which exactly. were very popular at the time. Uh, in, 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 what happened to Textron was that they had a very big consumer finance business that required borrowings. Um, the stock plunged from... 50 or $60 to five or six, and they needed to do an equity financing to shore up the balance sheet. Well, that, those are things we naturally find interesting because it's, um, it's like a little bit like holding a balloon underwater. You, uh, uh, your lenders are holding a gun to your head, and you have to finance yourself. Right. And it's very dilutive for the existing shareholders, but a new shareholder can often buy stocks very, very cheaply. So we made our first purchases after the crash, and um, why, you know, what was appealing about it? Well, they're in a bunch of different businesses where they have a big market share. Um, they're one of the biggest players in business jets. They own uh, Bell Helicopters, which is a leader in its business. They have a diversified business manufacturing company. They have an um, aerospace company, aerospace and defense company. And um, you know, we looked at it and said, you know, the sum of the parts is greater than the whole here. We think there's an opportunity to reduce costs. Uh, we think there's an opportunity for them to delever the balance sheet. And with some focus and discipline, um, they'll get there. And that's really what the management, uh, led by Scott Donnelly at Textron, has done over the last eight years. Mm -hmm. 
So you know, this, it has done pretty well, I'll say. Um, you know, it's probably done a bit better than the market since then, a bit better than the average mid-cap stock. However, what's intriguing to me about that stock today is the, the pent-up earnings power in the business jet um, asset. Um, and business jets have been in their own bear market for a decade. Wow. So, um, but as, as one often sees in a difficult period, there has been a Darwinian period here for the business jet manufacturer. So Textron bought one of its biggest competitors, Hawker Beechcraft, when it exited bankruptcy a few years ago. Other competitors, Embraer from Brazil, Bombardier from France, Dassault, uh, from Canada, and Dassault from France, are all withdrawing capacity from the market. And so the incumbents are gaining share. Now, it's, the business is profitable, uh, but together, these two companies, um, Cessna, the Textron mm -hmm. subsidiary, and Parker Beechcraft made over a billion dollars profit uh, in 2008, and they're making 400 million today. You know, we think that they could make at least a billion, a billion and a half dollars, perhaps, at the next cyclical peak. When that is, I couldn't tell you. Right. But jets age. There is a replacement cycle. There, you know, the demand is there. And, uh, you know, in my view, Textron's earnings, which are around $3 a share today, could be $5 a share in the next three or four years. And I believe the stock could be at least 50% higher than where it trades. David, what would your recommendation be for the one investment for a long-term diversified portfolio? It's hard to choose one. Uh, and I believe in diversification. But having said that, uh, Rainier, I think, would be the stock that I would highlight. Again, um, an old company. Right. Rainier which started out as a pulp and paper manufacturer in the 20s, which later acquired a lot of timber, um, was involved in the manufacture of rayon with DuPont in the 1930s. They're out of that business today. They are one of the biggest owners of timber in the U.S. We talked about Weyerhaeuser yes. earlier. Rainier has 2.7 million acres of timber. The great thing about this asset class is that um, it, the, the, the trees mature and become more valuable. And the land underneath the trees grows in value over time. So most timber manufacturers are able to sell a certain amount of their land uh, as developable land uh, to realtors. Mm -hmm. So um, there's a, the wind is at your back, so to speak, when right. you invest in this industry. Rainier itself is a real estate investment trust, uh, uh, so they pay no tax. Um, it, it is, uh, you know, the, the stock yields over 3%. Um, I think it's trading below the asset value. Um, this is one asset class where, interestingly, the private market value, in my view, is still meaningfully above the public market value. And um, um, if they continue to manage the businesses they have, I think that this will be a stock to own for a number of years, three, four, five, ten years. You know, we're talking about analyzing individual companies and you're in an environment right now, a macro environment, where the rest of the investment world is going the other way, and they're investing in index funds. Yes. Um, you know, how do you, you know, how do you view that movement? I think you need to look at the other periods in time when indexing has been popular. I, the, the, the biggest one, probably, in recent memory would be the tech bubble. Right. Uh, and, you know, you recall in the tech bubble, the 30% of uh, the S&P 500 was invested in tech stocks. 
Um, well, lo and behold, if you measure the return of the S&P 500 from the top in February of 00 to three years later, it was minus 45%. That interval was a wonderful period for active management. If you go back prior to that, a decade before that, in Japan, um, the Japanese stock market had, had a tremendous move. Right, and so it's never really recovered. It's not recovered. No. So um, I, in my view, it's a cyclical thing. Uh, usually when something becomes very popular on Wall Street, one should be very careful. And um, this passive indexing is really all the rage these days. Um, uh, many stocks, in my view, have more or less um, um, taken flight from their underlying value. Mm -hmm. And that can happen for a period of time. Good reminders yeah. for us. So if you believe, as I do, that over time, if markets work and capitalism is effective, um, I would submit that um, um, indexing will likely be less popular a few years from now. And um, if that's because the indexes have underperformed active managers, that wouldn't surprise me in the least. All right, we'll leave it there. David Wallach, thank you so much for joining us on WealthTrack. Thank you, Consuelo. Close of every wealth track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is make sure your stock portfolio is diversified among different asset classes. Most of us are heavily invested in large company stocks. They dominate U.S. stock index funds. Wallach, on the other hand, specializes in mid-cap stocks. Small-cap stocks are even more underowned. Internationally, we might have some exposure to large multinational companies, but few of us own any mid or small cap foreign companies and emerging market stocks have been shunned in recent years. Consider adding a smattering of each category to your mix through active or passive funds. Well, next week, are index funds actually expensive and high risk? Global value investor David Winters says they are and that he has the research to prove it. To see this program again and other WealthTrack interviews, please go to our website, wealthtrack.com. Also, feel free to reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for watching. Have a great weekend and make the week ahead a profitable and a productive one. New York Life, along with Mainstay's family of mutual funds, offers investment and retirement solutions so you can help your clients keep good going. Additional funding provided by... Thornburg Investment Management, Active Management, Flexible Perspective, Rosalind P. Walter, and the Fairholme Foundation.